morning. Uh, good to see you. My name is Drew Bennett. I'm one of the pastors here. Our scripture reading this morning is going to come from two places, uh, from Ephesians chapter 4, uh, verses 17 through 24, and then we're going to skip to Romans chapter 7, verses 4 through 6. Uh, typically, if you're new to our church, we would typically we are going through books of the Bible verse by verse, pretty much, uh, and, and just working our way through texts as they come. But for these first few weeks of the year, <clears throat> we're doing more of a, a topical series, though it's still exegetical in the sense that what we're saying, we hope, is coming directly from the scriptures. So we're piecing together from different places along the lines of themes are, are really the, the overarching theme of, of these weeks is just the word new. Uh, the word new comes up in the Bible a lot. It's an important biblical word because we often underestimate God. We expect too little of him. We attempt too little for him. And so we come across this word new. And this, the, the word new really is uh, God's way of just expanding our understanding of these things. So, so be looking for that, that word uh, as we read these passages together. They're printed for you in your worship folder. Uh, they are, it's on the screen behind me as well, but uh, the page numbers for the Pew Bibles are there for you as well, page 978 and page 943, if you can get between the two passages fast enough as we read. So if you would read with me, let's begin in Ephesians 4. Now this I say in testifying the Lord, this is Paul writing, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous. They've given themselves up to sensuality, greed, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you learned Christ. Assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. And then the apostle from Romans chapter 7, he says, Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law. Through the body of Christ, so that you may belong to one another, to him who's been raised from the dead, in order that we might bear fruit to God. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. This is God's word. Did you see it? This contrast here in both of these passages between something that is an old thing that is on the way out and this new thing that has come, that is coming, that's, that's to be ours, it comes up over and over and over again in the Bible because this word new, as you see on the screen behind me in, in that pretty lettering, this, this idea of new in the Bible is something very significant. When God says in Isaiah 43, 19, for example, behold, I am making, I'm doing something new. I'm doing a new thing. He means something supernatural. He means that things will never be the same. And that's good news because that's the kind of thing that we often need for him to come and do in our lives. And so this morning, I wonder about you. Are you expecting too little of God in this new year? Are you attempting too little for him? Have you grown cynical or full of fear? Well, this one little word, new, challenges our cynicism and fear and small thinking. And so, 
as I said, we're taking a number of weeks to look at how the Bible uses it to stretch us and to encourage us and to expand our understanding of what it is that God has actually set out to do in us and through us. Now, if you would look at, again at the verses in Romans 6, which we read, uh, there's all the language of fruit there. And fruit, of course, is just uh, the image of outcomes. And this is the question that's being asked by people today about Christianity. Not, is it true? Do you know that? The culture really not asking that question any longer. Uh, the question being asked by people in our culture is, does it work? Does it make any difference? Because we are savage prag pragmatists. And what Paul says there is that the fruit, the outcome of belief in Jesus Christ, is what he calls, in verse 4, it's another place where this, this thing comes up, newness of life. He says if you believe, the result in your life is, what, is this newness of life. And so people of faith, as we've said in weeks past, are not just good people. They're more than that. They're new people. A Christian is a person who was dead and is now alive, not just a person who was bad and is now good, and there's a big difference. And that difference, the difference between not just bad to good, but death to life, the difference between those two things is the very thing that makes the gospel plausible. So if you're a Christian, your story isn't, you know, I was making a mess of things, but, you know, I got my act together, started going to church, and everything's better now. That's religion. But not Christianity. A Christian's testimony goes something like this. This is the story. This is a Christian story. I was lost, and now I'm found. I was blind, but now I see. I was dead and in the grave, and now I'm alive with newness of life. And that is what makes possible the articulation of the gospel in our culture. That's, that's what Jesus makes possible in us. Not just same old, same old, but resurrection power for profound change that makes the gospel believable to those who do not yet believe it. You with me? You see what I'm saying? So there's an old story, and I've told it before, but I just like it so much, I, I come back to it, and it always encourages me, so I just thought it, I would share it again with you. There's a story about St. Augustine, and you've heard that St. Augustine is in heaven, St. Augustine's in Florida, you know the difference between those two things, okay? So St. Augustine struggled for years to trust in, in Christ because he was sexually promiscuous. And to be quite honest, he knew that to become a Christian, he would have to give up his lovers, and he wasn't willing to do that. And then uh, he was radically converted. And the story is told that he was walking down the street after becoming a Christian one day, and, and one of his old mistresses saw him, began to run up, at, run up to him and began to shout after him, but he just ignored her and kept walking. So she assumed from past experience that he must just have not recognized her. So she ran up to him and grabbed him and turned him around and said, Augustine, it is I, it is I, to which Augustine replied, yes, I know, but it is no longer I. And that is the story of every person who believes. But where do you... This morning, as we talk about these things, where do you need to be made new like that? Where do you, what, what area in your life do you need for God to bring this newness of life that he promises here? This new, if you look in Ephesians 4, this new self, renewed in the spirit of your mind, or this new way of the spirit there in Romans chapter 7, okay? And so this newness of life that we're going to talk about this morning, I want, there's just two things, and hopefully we'll be quick. Uh, I want you to see the promise of it from the Ephesians passage, 
And then we're going to talk about the power for it from the Romans passage. So if you're, if you're tracking with me, you just heard me say we're actually two sermons inside a sermon this morning. Just kidding. It's going to be okay. But we want to look at each of those two passages and draw some conclusions from both. The promise for newness of life from the Ephesians passage and the power for newness of life uh, from Romans 7. So let's just let's look together first at uh, what I mean by the promise of new life. And, and again, we're going to focus on those verses in Ephesians 4. So uh, draw your attention there. Uh, notice the contrast between the old self, literally, literally it's the old man, and the new self or the new man. So if you're a Christian... Like Augustine, there's a person you used to be, but you're not that person anymore. And there's a person that you're becoming more and more as you learn the habit of putting off and putting on, which the apostle describes here. So Paul starts by talking about the old self. We're going to see the contrast. There's a contrast in each of these verses. Here it's a contrast between the old self and the new self. But he talks about the old self first. In verse 22, he says, You were taught, put off the old self, which belongs to your former manner of life, and is corrupt through deceitful desires. There's so much packed into that one verse. We could, again, really, it really could be a sermon all in itself. Paul says uh, to these Christians in Ephesus, There is an, an old you that belongs to your former life, the life you lived before you believed. Your life is now different than it was then. And so he says, for you, there was a before and after. And I would say to you, for every person who believed, there is a before and after. So what is your before and after story? Paul will often be talking this way about the people that those who, you know, he was writing to used to believe. And then he'll interrupt whatever he's saying with just a very simple phrase. He says, but God, you were this and your life was going this way, but God... And the stuff to the left of the but God is very different than the stuff to the right. Because when God gets involved, everything changes. And the result is something new. And so here, Paul's describing life to the left of the but God. Life before God interrupted and began to change things in these people. And he says, your manner of life there, verse 22, your old self, which belonged to your former manner of life. And that refers, that phrase there refers to the beliefs and the values and the habits that all come together to determine the what and the when and the who and the how and even the why of your day-to-day life. You have a manner of life, beliefs and values and habits and practices that determine the what and the when and the who and the how and even the why of your day-to-day as it plays out. This manner of life, he says, was corrupt, verse 22, that is spoiled, rotten. It was a decomposing corpse. Without God, we are the walking dead. Slowly rotting, except not just our flesh and bones, but our souls too. Because of their deceitful desires. And here, I do want to slow down for just a minute because this is so, so important. Because that word there is one that that our church, that we're familiar with, because we do talk about this quite a bit, or at least we should be, uh, and, and I, I hope, if I'm doing my job, uh, you already know what I'm about to say. Uh, because wherever you see the, the word desire, most times you should know it's this very important word, epithumia, uh, which is, tra- which is epi- it means epidesire. It's translated lust most often in the, in the Bible. Uh, and, and, and it's really instructive there, because we usually... You know, we usually associate lust with sexual sin, that there is a healthy God-given desire for sex within marriage as an act of self-giving love, and then there is an unhealthy, out-of-control desire for sex that leads to all kinds of destructive behavior, and that's what we call lust. But the thing is, is lust isn't just about sex. It refers to any exaggerated desire. 
anytime something, something becomes an ultimate thing, even if that's some, that, that thing is something good. So, so you see, if you want something bad for you, then that's going to cause problem. If you, if you have a, a driving desire for something that is unhealthy or bad for you, that's a problem. But if you want something good, but you want it too much, that's a problem too. And so a couple of examples about how epithumia can really be, you know, engaged in our lives. You can have an over-desire when it comes to your kids. And what this, the text says is that that over-desire will ultimately corrupt you in your role as a parent. You won't discipline them the way you should because you have an over-desire for them to be happy and for there to be peace in the home. Or, um, how, you know, you can, or you'll, you'll over-discipline them because of epi-desires for them to just get their act together and be okay because you can't be okay unless they're okay. And, and the result is it will ruin your parenting because you're being driven by a good thing. A parent should want to discipline their children, but the epi-desires can corrupt all of that. Or you can have epi-desires when it comes to work that will corrupt you. You'll begin to cut corners to achieve success, or you'll daydream about having a different job and not, and not give your best to the job that you have now. So whenever God is not the first thing, we're ruled instead by epi-desires that produce epi-emotion in us, epi-anxiety, epi-fear, epi-anger that cause us to act in self-destructive ways because we buy into the lie. Paul says, do you see there verse 22? This is what is unique about the way epi- he describes epithumia here. He says they are deceitful desires. They lie to us. They make promises that keep us coming back. And keep us enslaved, but they never, they never deliver. Now, that's the old self. That's the description of the people that these people used to be, Paul says, before they came to faith. And the people that, that many of us used to be. That's the before picture. It's contrasted with what Paul calls in verse 24, the new self, the new man. And it is the description who's gone, of a person who's gone through a complete transformation and become something entirely different than they were before. They have an entirely different orientation for life, a new set of values and beliefs and habits. They live, you'll see there, katatheon, literally after God. You see that in verse 20, uh, 23? I said verse 24, I'm sorry. Renewed in the spirit of your mind. And to put on verse 24, the old self created after the likeness of God. Uh, the phrase there is katatheon. They literally live after God. Their day-to-day is patterned after God, not their family of origin or the way they've always done it. Their natural personality is still there, of course, but it's not dominant. They've been profoundly disrupted and redirected, and now their whole life is lived in orientation toward God himself. And there are two words that describe this new self, if you see there at the very, very end. And they're very important. Righteousness and holiness. This new person, this new self is characterized by these two words. And they're both very important. And the order there is important as well. So you see the word righteousness, it means, drum roll, it means right. But it's a relational term. So we might use the word integrated as a synonym. That's the way I like to think of this. And something that is integrated, it means that... All of the pieces fit and are working together properly so that the machine, so that the system is operating the way that it should. And so a person who is righteous is rightly related to God, which then brings the whole system of their life into integration. Their relationships begin to work properly. They're even 
internally integrated. The mind and the body and the emotions all start to work together the way they're supposed to, to create wholeness instead of friction and breakdown. This really is what Christianity can do in us. Sin leads to disintegration, first and foremost with in our relationship with God and then everywhere else. If you're not properly related and properly fit with your creator, then nothing else will be working the way that's supposed to either. But once there's integration vertically with the one who made you, that integration is so powerful that it brings everything else in your life into alignment as you continue to live your life in repentance and faith. So first and foremost, we see this word righteousness. And righteousness in verse 24 pairs with the word corruption in verse 22. And so it's the contrast there. It refers to a person whose life is running the way that it should because they're rightly related to God. And this, we're told, leads to holiness, which just means piety or a Godward life, a life of obedience and service to God and to others. And I said the order is important there as well because you see righteousness here comes before holiness. And in Christianity, that's the way it works. In Christianity, you don't live a holy life in order to get righteous. Excuse me, in order to get righteousness. Righteousness is a gift. It's something that's given by God, not earned through Jesus. But the fruit, the fruit of becoming right, the fruit of becoming integrated is always holiness. Being right with God makes all the stuff start working the way that it should. And the result is what we read last week from Ezekiel. You have this internal frame that is now properly oriented and motivated toward being careful to obey God's commands and to do all that he said. Now, put a pin in that, okay? We're going to come back to that in just a minute. And so a Christian, we're told here, and it's being described for us, is a person who has put off this old self and is put on or putting on the new self. So verses 24 and 25, excuse me, 22, 23, and 24, you were taught, put off your old self and put on the new. And this is the language of conversion, which is what we talked about last week. And it's a metaphor that really, I mean, the metaphor here is just a change of clothes, you're, 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 change, you're, you're taking off one set of clothes and putting on another. This past week, I, I asked him if I could just share this because I thought it was so funny. But I walked into Patrick's office uh, earlier this week, and he smelled so good, which I guess maybe, maybe you normally don't smell that good. I don't know, but I noticed it. I, like, noticed it. I was like, oh, man. And it was, it was clear that he had uh, gone home and taken a shower. He'd gotten all cleaned up. He looked really nice. And I said, wow, what, what, where are you going? He said, I'm going to the gym. And I just thought it was the funniest thing because, of course, normally, normally that's not the way you do that. Normally, you would go to the gym and get all nasty. Then you would come home and take off your gym clothes that are soaked and smelly and take a shower and get all cleaned up and put on a clean set of clothes. But Patrick does it the opposite way, I guess. So, <laughs> so in Romans 13... In Romans, this, this language of putting off and putting on, of changing clothes, you find it a lot of places in, in the scriptures. And it's just that. But he's saying, take off that smelly, uh, sweaty, gross, nasty stuff and put on the new. And in Romans 13, for example, you get Paul saying, clothe yourself with the Lord Jesus. In Galatians, it says that in being baptized, you're putting on Christ. And so a Christian is a person who's been clothed in the righteousness of Jesus, on the red carpet of heaven, when they ask you, who are you wearing tonight? I'll give you the answer. The answer is, I'm wearing Jesus. But that's not all. 
there's a surprise that you might not get by just reading in the ESV because it doesn't come out in the translation. And so let me be nerdy again with you. I told you last week I was going to do that. But Greek verbs uh, not only have tenses, they also have voice. They have what's called voice, which contributes to their meaning as well. That's why Greek is a really intricate language. But um, the active voice is used when the subject is the one doing the action of the verb. So here, if you read it in the active voice, it would be that the putting off and the putting on is something that we are to do. It's what God has given us to do. It's our work. The passive voice is used when the subject is being acted on. So in that case here, it would be that the putting off and the putting on would be something done to us, that God, of course, would be doing, doing this in us. But here, it's not the active voice and it's not the passive voice. It is actually the middle voice. And the middle voice is unique to Greek. And with the middle voice, it's both. And so the putting off and the putting on is something that happens to us in conversion. We're acted upon this way. God decisively does something to where uh, the old me is put off and the new me is put on. But it's also something that we have to do. We have to act upon ourselves in this way. And so if you're a Christian, you're a new person. Isn't that great news? But there's also something here. But you've got to keep being renewed. By continually, in your mind, changing out of your old clothes and putting on Jesus. That's the teaching. And so secondly, then, we come to the Romans passage. And in the Romans passage, we see the power for newness of life, or actually, I would say, maybe even the practice of newness of life. Whatever, however you would, whatever P word to make it, you know, start with a P there, you would, you would use. But the first thing that you see in Romans, as you come to Romans, is, is that this, this putting off and putting on that, that we have to continually do, changing out of old clothes and putting on Jesus, it's a matter of the way you think. Or better, the way you believe. So if you look, the, well, in Ephesians 4.23, it says, be renewed in the spirit of your mind. This happens in the mind. And I say it all the time, that behavior follows belief. Every behaving problem is a believing problem. So change starts with changing your mind. And again, you miss it in the translation, but there in Ephesians 4.24, righteousness and holiness are a matter of believing the truth. It's literally in, those, in that verse, the righteousness and holiness of the truth. Which is a little awkward, hence the way that it's translated, but that is what it means. That the power for newness comes from plugging into and drawing life from the truth. Not the deceitful desires that corrupt there in Ephesians 4.22. Not the false gods that lie and flatter, but the truth of the gospel that produces righteousness and holiness. Now with that said, I want to try to make this as simple as possible because some of this today has been, <clears throat> excuse me, rather heady. And I want to focus in on, what, on Romans 7, 6, where Paul makes another contrast, the way that he did in the Ephesians passage, between what he calls the old way of the written code and the new way of the Spirit. And here, there we see the truth. This is the truth that you have to plug your life into, that when you plug your life into this truth, it becomes the power to be putting off the old and to be putting on the new and to be being renewed in the spirit of your mind so that you find newness of life. It's this truth. That the power, that the power for newness of life doesn't come from your doing for God, but for, from God's doing for you. Not your doing for him. Christianity is not about your doing for him. That's just religion. Christianity is different. Christianity is the good news of God's doing for you. And when you plug your life into that power source, that's when you find the newness of life. Now, let's take those in reverse order as they're presented to us here, and let's talk about the old way of the law first. You can live 
as if your doing matters the most. And that's what the Bible means by the concept of law. The Bible's full of all kinds of rules. If you obey, then God will be pleased with you and you'll have a good life. This is what law says, but there's no power in that, no life, only death. Paul says living under the weight of the law's demands, in verse 6, there's captivity. It's like being handcuffed. Literally, it holds you back. It's the thing. Law is not the thing that unlocks spiritual you know, advance in your life. It's the thing that keeps the door locked. So the law is not a solution to sin. It's actually an instrument of sin. That's what all this here in Romans 7 is about, and we've done this text before. You can go and look that sermon up if you're, if you're interested in that. But notice one thing in particular. It says, verse 5, that the law... Do you notice there it says the law actually arouses our sinful passions? In other words, it doesn't, the law doesn't take away the epi desires. Guess what? It makes them worse. Which, of course, makes everything worse. And you know this. I mean, you know this. I mean, you're sophisticated. So it may be a little harder to detect. But take a child and put them in a room full of toys and say, Don't, you're not allowed to touch this. What have you done to that child? You've just ruined that child's life. Because as soon as you say, don't touch this, what's the only thing they can think of? That must be where the good stuff is. And, that, and that's what Paul's saying. They can't help themselves. Tell, tell a child no about something, and it makes them want it more. Because they're cute, but they're sinners. They're just cute little sinners. But that is how corrupt our hearts are. And that's why the law doesn't work. Now, let's say you've been bad and you want to change. And so you came to church this morning. You decide the solution to being bad is that you're now going to be good. That's law. And so you try to be good. Now, let's say that you're, you're not successful, which is our experience most of the time. What happens? What happens? I've been bad. I'm, I'm now going to be good, but I've tried, and I've, I've not really been able to pull it off. What happens? Well, you, you feel even worse about yourself now. And because you feel so bad about yourself, you begin to hate the people who've done better than you, and so you're just worse off than you were before. Let's say, though, you've been bad, and you say, you know what? I'm going to be good now. I'm going to figure out how to be good. And, and let's say you were actually successful. You lose the weight. Or you meet your goals. What then? Have you ever met a person like that? How insufferable are they? Because what happens when your goodness is the great goal of your life and you actually achieve it? You, make the, you meet the goal. You make the team. What, well, then that's even worse because you immediately feel good about yourself. And because you feel so good about yourself, you look down on the people who have failed where you've succeeded. And that kind of goodness is the worst kind of badness. See, no, we need, a, we need another way. We need what Paul describes here, not the law that brings death and that locks us up and imprisons us, but the new way of the spirit there in verse 6. So what matters is not you're doing for God, but God's doing for you. Grace. I mean, both sin and grace are reigning powers in the Bible, particularly in Romans 6, 7, and 8. They're reigning powers, and sin wields its power through the law by making you hyper-introspective and competitive and so either feeling bad about yourself or feeling good about yourself or bouncing back and forth between the two, but whatever it is, always thinking about you, just being completely self-centered. That's the old man, and you got to put him off. And you got to put on the new by believing into the truth of the gospel. See, grace, grace wields its power through the gospel. 
And the gospel good news is that it's not what you do that makes you righteous. Put on Christ. He is our righteousness. He was delivered up for our sins and raised for our justification, Paul says in Romans 4. Jesus Christ died the death that we owed to God because of our sins. He lived the life that we owed to God to bring us into a state of rightness. And he was raised so that we might walk in newness of life. And he ascended into heaven and he has sent the spirit from heaven to empower us in service. That's the gospel. All of that record of of God's doing for us in Jesus. That's the good news, not advice. News about what God's grace has accomplished for us in Jesus. And it is this constant daily reorientation towards God's doing that allows the Spirit to accomplish his work in us. So Paul says you've died to the law through the body of Christ so that you may belong to another, to him who's been raised from the dead, Romans 7, 4. So this old man tries to make it through life with the law. But the new man, the new man has died to all of that. The new man believes into something different. The new man believes into the truth that the law doesn't give righteousness. It actually takes it away. The law is meant by God to take away all the pride and self-confidence in you so that you will turn to Jesus who obeyed for you so that his record of law-keeping could be yours by faith. Here's what Paul's saying. Change out of your law clothes. Change out of your fig leaf righteousness. That doesn't cover you anyway. One strong gust of wind and you're done for. Quit the strategy of obeying the law for righteousness and put him on. Rest in Jesus. Not just today, but tomorrow. And the day after that, and the day after that, again and again and again, be constantly putting off through repentance the idea that you can earn a righteousness with God on your own and be putting on the truth that all the work that is needed has been done and Jesus is on the cross saying, it is finished. Lay your deadly doing down. We need habits. Gosh, I've been thinking a lot about that here at the beginning of the year. Anybody else? But we need habits not just for behaving. We need to develop habits of believing. Because John 6 says that the work that Jesus has given us to do is not to obey him, but to first believe, because you can't obey until you believe. But what exactly, just to encourage you, what exactly is the promise here? What is it about this new way of the Spirit uh, that just to encourage us and to motivate us towards what Paul is saying to us here. And I'm glad, I'm glad you asked because I made a list of a few things, okay? Um, and you'll see, you know, so this new way of the Spirit. Well, it's, it's a new starting place. You start from a place of integration, from rightness, from okayness with not being okay. That you can just rest in, right? It's okay to not be okay. Can I get a name, Right? It's okay to not, and now it's not okay to stay that way. But it's okay to not be okay, and you can just, you can just rest in that. As Steve Brown used to say, the only person, the only people who, who get any better are the people who know that if they don't get any better, God will love them anyway. Because righteousness is not still out there, that I'm still striving to get it, but it's mine now by faith as a gift, and I can just start from that place of rest and integration. So it's a new starting place, but then also a new master. 
See, not the out-of-control desires that enslave us, these epi desires that corrupt our parenting and our work and our friendships and everything, but the text says that now we belong to another, and he's the one calling to the shots, and he is a good, good master. Jesus Christ is the only master. The, 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 the idols say to you, come and die for me. Jesus says, no, I've come to die for you. He's a much better master, but not just a new starting place and a new master. There's a new source, which we talked about last week, a heart now inclined towards obedience. This is Ezekiel 36 and Romans 6, 17. So a new starting place and a new master and a new source, which results in a new set of motivations and desires that are now driving your life and everything that you do, not competitive pride or self-interest, which is just part of the old man, but genuine love for God and others, not external coercion from the law that produce guilt and fear, but inner compulsion from gratitude and worship. And not only all of that, but a new spiritual power. It's the way of the Spirit here. So the Spirit, which if you're familiar with the Bible, the Spirit who was hovering over the creation in the beginning in Genesis 1, now hovering over our lives to recreate us. Which results in a new freedom. Freedom to color outside of the lines a bit. To experiment and dream and make mistakes. Do you know that you're free to fail. Don't live a small life out of fear. Dream big. Attempt great things for God. Some of them will go great and some of them will won't. It's okay. Because ultimately there's new fruit. Not fruit for death, Romans 7, 5, which is all the law produces, but fruit for God. And so a new starting place and a new master and a new source and a new set of motivations and desires and a new spiritual power and a new freedom that produces new fruit. Doesn't that sound great? It does to me. And it doesn't matter whether you're brand new to Christianity or a longtime believer. Don't strive for a better you. That's turning to the law. That's, that's just remaining in your old law clothes. Put off all that old man's stuff and put on Christ and you'll find newness of life. There's an old hymn that describes what I've been trying to say better than I can about the difference between the law and the gospel. Uh, and the words of the hymn just say this, the law provokes men off to ill, and stony hearts makes harder still. But gospel acts a kinder part, and melts a most obstinate heart. Listen to this, run, run, and work, the law commands, yet finds me neither feet nor hands. But sweeter news the gospel brings, it bids me fly, and lends me wings. Uh, pray with me, would you? So, Father... We can feel in our hearts the truth of that song where the law is powerless to affect any real lasting change in us. The gospel is the power of God. And so help us to be believing more and more into the truth of your great love for us in Jesus. Not so that we just become a better version of our old selves, but that it's not like, as C.S. Lewis said, we looked at last week, it's not like trying to train a horse to just jump higher than it has before, but it's like turning a horse into a winged creature that soars. And so that's the reality, that the truth of your, the good news of your love for us in Jesus and for his great work of salvation on our behalf can give us wings and cause us to soar. And that is what we want. But it's only ours as we continue throughout this life the process of repenting 
and believing and repenting and believing. And, and that's what we do here now as we sing this song. I think, I think the song, Amazing Grace, which is just the testimony of every single person in the room who's come to faith of what we once were and what we now are and the recognition that all of it, all of it is due to you and none of it is due to us. You deserve all of the glory. You deserve all of the praise because every ounce of the work was yours. And so all of the credit is yours. And all that is left for us to do is to sing in gratitude and joy and worship. And so as we sing, may, may the words, uh, may, we, may we sing one another in this moment into the reality of putting off the old and putting on the new. And may we find a power at work in us that we've not known before, that we might become people following the new way of the Spirit that bear fruit that glorifies you greatly, which is what we so desire and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. No matter what the day may, may, ahead of you may look like, no matter what you might anticipate, no matter how that news lands upon your heart, the truth of these words are just as true. That God in Jesus has turned his face toward us to fill our life with blessing and peace. And so receive these words and go putting off the old and putting on the new, the new truth that, that is yours in the words of this benediction. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you his peace, both now and forevermore. Amen. God bless you. Go in his peace.